Well, good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, whatever time of day it is when you may tune in. This is Minister Kay Mortimer with Covenant Truth Ministries, and welcome. Thank you again for joining me today, and God bless you. I pray that this message will be a blessing to you today. In this message, we want to talk about another episode of our volume of the book, Portraits of Yeshua Bible Study as we're looking at how Jesus is the focus of all of the Bible, and even he used the Old Testament or the Tanakh to show the portraits of him, to show how it was prophetic and pointed to him. And so we want to see how and where is he in the Tanakh, in the Old Testament scriptures. And so we began at the beginning. We began with Genesis and we're still in Genesis and will be for several more lessons. Genesis may end up being like volume one of the volume of the book, Portraits of Yeshua. But in the first lesson, in the introductory lesson, we spoke about how Jesus is all through the book called the Bible, especially in the Old Testament or in the Tanakh. There's an old phrase that says the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed. And the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. And that is very true. There, there is a divine connection. You cannot separate them. And you do yourself and the Word of God disservice and shame if you try to separate them. The Old Testament has the New Testament in it in concealed, hidden form in the sense that it's not revealed at, the, at that time to those that were writing it. But it is revealed when you tie it with the New Testament, because the New Testament reveals all that was shown and told in the Old Testament. They are divinely connected and cannot be separated. In lesson two, we saw how Jesus is the creator and sustainer of all things, as told in Genesis 1 through 2. And we saw scriptures even such as Colossians chapter 1, where this proves it and the tie is made between the two testaments. In lesson three, we looked at the last Adam in comparison and contrast with the first Adam of Genesis chapter one and two and Genesis chapter three. And we saw how the last Adam is the savior for the first Adam's sins and sinful inheritance that passed to all others. And we saw how Paul brings that out in Romans and in Corinthians as well. So today we want to look at another beautiful portrait of Jesus from Genesis. In Genesis chapter 1 through 3, we see how the original Adam and the original sin is foundational to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Genesis chapter 1 through 11 is absolute foundation for everything else to be built upon throughout the scripture. And this is one reason why these chapters, these early chapters of Genesis, are the most that are disputed and attacked of all of Scripture. But they form the absolute foundation for everything else. Because Genesis is the book of beginnings of everything. It tells us the beginning of everything, the foundation and basis. So as we continue through, we want to see now the beautiful portrait of Jesus that is shown to us Again, in Genesis chapter 3, this is a new one, a different one than what we've looked at thus far. In the last lesson, we looked at 
the first Adam versus the last Adam. We talked about Genesis chapter 3 and the sin of mankind. So we're going back into that for this lesson today, which is another portrait of Yeshua. So I want to begin the reading in Genesis chapter 3, and I want to begin in verse 9. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, meaning God said, the Lord said, Who told you you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? Then the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So Genesis 3.15 is the very first direct messianic prophecy in the scriptures. And it speaks about this coming one who this verse calls the seed of the woman. This is who we're going to talk about today. So I want us to go, first of all, though, and I want to look at John chapter 3. We're going to read a few verses here. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus answered and said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel? And do not know these things? Most assuredly, I say to you, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. If I've told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is the Son of Man who is in heaven. So Jesus has this encounter. Some like to refer to it as Nick at night. Jesus talks to Nicodemus. We have to remember who Nicodemus is. He's a Jewish leader. He is a rabbi of rabbis. He is a teacher of Israel. My understanding is that he would have had to know the entirety of the Tanakh backwards and forwards, possibly even have it memorized. He would have known it. He would have been steeped in it. He would be reading it every day, copying it. 
He would be teaching it. And so Jesus, in this encounter, notice this in verse 10. Jesus answered and said to him, Are you, speaking directly to Nicodemus, are you the teacher of Israel and do not know these things? In other words, Jesus is saying, you're the teacher of Israel. You should know all of this that I'm telling you. You should have that understanding. It's in the Tanakh. If you knew the Tanakh as well as you think you know the Tanakh, you would know this. You would understand that it is there. So Nicodemus knew the Old Testament very well, but he only had the letter of the law. He did not have the spirit life. He was steeped in tradition, but he was not alive in the spirit of God. So Jesus is telling him about this concept called born again or being born again. According to Jesus, Nicodemus should have known it. So this tells us something very special. It's in the Old Testament. Nicodemus didn't have any New Testament at that time. There was none. They were living it and would later be inspired by the Spirit of God to write it. But at that time, there was no scripture except the Hebrew scriptures. The Old Testament is what we call it in our day, the Tanakh. So Jesus is telling him, if you understood the Old Testament that you claim you know and that you're supposedly teaching, you would understand now why I come on the scene and I'm saying you must be born again. You must be born from above. You must be born of the Spirit of God and of water. Because it's in the Old Testament. The scripture that Nicodemus taught and knew contained this concept. So where is it? And what does it mean? Well, the root of it goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. Exactly where we are right now. Genesis 3.15 that first messianic prophecy in the Old Testament promised a coming Messiah, a coming Savior, a coming Redeemer. In other words, that promise gave the solution to the sin problem. Remember, even in the last message, we talked about this, how the fig leaves didn't do. That was them trying to cover with their own good works their sin, and it's not a solution. Good works will never save you. You cannot be good enough. You can't be clothed enough with your own doings. It has to be the Lord. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. And that goes all the way back to the first sin. An animal innocently had to die to provide the covering that Adam and Eve were given by the Lord in an act of grace to cover them. And it was all pointing to Jesus, the Lamb of God that John the Baptist indicates who will take away the sin of the world. Jesus had to shed his blood to provide the sin solution. And the very first promise of that is Genesis 3.15. So let's examine this promise for a few minutes. Notice that it's the seed of the woman versus the seed of the serpent. The seed of the woman is going to crush the serpent, the serpent's head, the th serpent's power, the serpent's authority. And the seed of the serpent, according to Genesis 3.15, 
is going to bruise his heel, bruise the heel of the seed of the woman. He's going to be allowed to bruise his heel. It means to crush his heel. Now, this prophecy about the coming Messiah was given approximately 4,000 years before it was fulfilled in the Messiah who has come, Yeshua, the Messiah. It was 4,000 years before it was fulfilled. But that prophecy never died. It stayed alive that entire 4,000 years. As a matter of fact, during that 4,000 years, we got more information about it. We got more of the puzzle pieces, so to speak, that fit with it, that show us the whole picture. And we're going to talk about a few of those in a moment. But we need to understand that with Hebrew prophecy, there's a near fulfillment sometimes and a far fulfillment. And even in this prophecy, that is true because there was a portion of it that was fulfilled 4,000 years after it was spoken. And that was when the serpent bruised the heel of the seed of the woman at his crucifixion. But even at his crucifixion, beginning from there, all the way through what is yet to come, still ahead but coming, is the fact that the seed of the woman is bruising and crushing the serpent's head. According to Galatians chapter 2, verse 14 and 15, it says that at the cross, when Jesus died at the cross, he disarmed the principalities and powers of darkness. In other words, he stopped their power to hold slaves in sin. When those slaves come to Jesus and repent and confess their sin and ask him to forgive them, they then become born again, exactly like Jesus said. And the power of sin in their life is then broken. So Jesus did at his cross, in effect, crush the serpent's head in that sense. He has delivered us from the power of sin and from the penalty of sin. But we are yet waiting and ultimately will come when he will deliver us from the presence of sin. That is the completion of Genesis 3.15 that is still yet to happen in the future. Psalm 110 speaks of that because it speaks of how of this Messiah who was to come, that he would raise again, he would sit at the right hand of God until his enemies are crushed under his feet. So this is what we're still waiting on is the completion of Genesis 3.15, but it has begun to be fulfilled in Messiah. So this is talking about a seed, a child or some born, a descendant through the serpent or through the woman. The seed of the serpent, the seed of the woman. This is what's in contrast here. Now, through the serpent, let's discuss that for a moment. There's a couple of things I want to I want us to understand. First of all, there is a passage in Genesis chapter 6 that speaks of the sons of God coming down and having relations with the daughters of men. And that term for the sons of God, Ben Elohim, is literally translated in other places in the scripture and interpreted to mean by scripture that it is talking about angels. These are fallen angels, what we might refer to now as demons or demonic creatures, demonic spirits. And so through the serpent, 
These did come about. They created what was known as the giants. And if you follow that through the scriptures, you see that there was one specific giant that little David had to face in 1 Samuel chapter 17. And his name was Goliath. So we see the seed of the serpent in that way. However, Jesus in the New Testament, in the Gospels, speaks of some people being of their father, the devil. So it's not just talking about a literal seed. It's talking about the seed that was planted inside the nature and heart of mankind for a propensity and a inherency toward sin. It's talking about sin, lying, pride, other things. Jesus is speaking to those. And he says, you are of your father, the devil. And he was a liar from the beginning. He's the father of lies. So his seed is lies and producing liars and those who are of sin and of a sin nature. Then it talks about the seed of the woman. In other words, it's speaking of the fact that it's the seed of the woman, which is not biologically accurate because the woman doesn't have the seed. The woman has an egg, but the man is the one that has the seed or the sperm. But it's saying then, in essence, the seed of the woman is speaking of one that will come from a mother, but not from an earthly father. Now, in Genesis chapter 4, verse 1, we see how Adam knew his wife Eve. In other words, they, they had relations. They had sexual relations as a husband and wife. And God allowed her to conceive. And that child was named Cain. She named him Cain because she assumed that this was the God-man, the seed of the woman that she had just been promised. The problem is she jumped the gun about 4,000 years too early. Jump the gun just meaning that she got ahead of God. She, she tried to figure God out and thought that this was the fulfillment of that prophecy, and it was not. A promised one who would be born was going to be a human being, one of the same type of humanity as the woman, one of flesh and blood like mankind whom he had made, but it was going to be the seed of the woman. It was going to be one born from a woman. God said in this verse, he put enmity, hostility, and hatred, opposite or an enemy. He put enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, and that the seed of the woman would bruise the head of the serpent, and the seed of the serpent would bruise or crush the heel of the seed of the woman. And this word means crush or strike. And the head represents the authority or the power or the rule. So in the crushing of the head of the serpent, it refers first, first and foremost to the resurrection of Jesus. That begins this, and it ultimately ends in Revelation chapter 20, verse 10, when Christ has his ultimate victory. But the serpent would be allowed to bruise the seed of the woman's heel, the foot and that was done at the crucifixion of Jesus. Psalm 22, verse 16 tells us that they pierced his hands and his feet. So even here in Genesis chapter 3, 15, which later David 
gives us further information on in Psalm 22. It tells us how this is going to be fulfilled. The serpent seed is going to be allowed to crush the Messiah's heel, but Messiah will triumph and he will crush the serpent's head, the serpent's power, authority, rule, and kingdom. And we see that in several verses of scripture. The first one is in Psalm 110, also quoted in Hebrews 1 verse 13, where the Lord is going to be ascended and sit at the right hand of God until his enemies are made his footstool. In Revelation 11, verse 15 through 19, it begins to speak of how Christ is now going to reign on the earth. And that word means to, in the Greek, it means to begin to reign. In the tense of the Greek, if you understand that in Revelation 11, 15 through 19, when it talks about how Christ has come, and rain is raining on the earth. It's talking about how he's beginning to reign. In other words, from that point forward, he is beginning his reign, his kingdom reign, and it will ultimately culminate in the crushing of the serpent's head entirely. In Daniel chapter 2, verse 44 through 45, Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 2 has been has had this dream, has been given this dream by God, and Daniel is given the interpretation of that. And at the end of the dream, there's this rock that's hewn out of the mountain without hands that crushes all of the kingdoms. And that rock is the Messiah who's coming, that one who will crush all his enemies, who will crush and destroy the head of the serpent and the seed of the serpent's head. So we see that Jesus is going to reign in his kingdom Overall, he is Lord of all. So in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, we see the promise of the sin solution through the seed of the woman. This also tells us a few other things about the coming Messiah. He will be of mankind. He will be a human being. Yet he will have no human father. In other words, he will be the true, what we might call, and I don't mean this mythologically, I mean this seriously. According to the scripture, he may be one that we could say is the God-man. In other words, he's not some mythological made-up creature, but he is 100% God and 100% man. He will be born as all other people are since Adam. He will be virgin-born which is unique. He will be the only one who is begotten of the Father God. He is the only one who is born of the virgin. He is the seed of the woman. This seed is not human. It is divine. It is eternal. He will, however, be implanted into the womb of a woman and born a human being. 100% God, 100% man, and born of a virgin. He is the seed of the woman. Later scripture ties the puzzle pieces together for us a little more fully. So let's look at a couple of those. First of all, let's go to Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14 and 15. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a son. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Curds and honey he shall eat, that he may know to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the child shall know to refuse the evil and choose the good, 
The land that you dread will be forsaken by both her kings. So in other words, we're told here in this passage a little more information about this seed of the woman. And Isaiah is given this puzzle piece to connect them directly. In other words, Isaiah says, first of all, a virgin will conceive. In other words, he will be the seed of the woman. He will be virgin born. He will be born as a child. He will be a son that's given. He will be a child. And his name, indicating who he is, is Emmanuel, God with us. And he will grow as any other child would. Then in Isaiah, Isaiah has a little more of the puzzle pieces. In chapter 9, verse 6 and 7. In Isaiah 9, 6 and 7, he says this, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. This is going back to the seed of the woman, the son, the child, the one that's virgin born in Isaiah 7. And the government will be upon his shoulder. In other words, here again, he's going to be king with an unending kingdom. He's going to have the rule. He's going to ultimately be the one over crushing the serpent's head. The government will be upon his shoulder and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. So we see that he is this coming son, this coming child, who will be king, who will have the power. He is the virgin-born seed of the woman. Now notice this in Isaiah 9, 6 and 7. There's one part of verse 6 that we need to, maybe if you believe in and you don't mind, writing in your Bible or highlighting your Bible or whatever. Highlight, if your version says it like this, if your version says everlasting father or eternal father, make a note that that in the Hebrew literally should be translated father of eternity. Father of eternity. That is very powerful, and we're going to talk a little more about that in just a moment, and you'll understand why. In Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and 14, we see that he is also the son of man that is coming and that will receive the eternal kingdom from, from the ancient of days, Father God. And when we come into to the Gospels, you see that Mark's Gospel, particularly out of all four, refers to him as the son of man throughout. Many of them refer to that, but Mark has a tendency to speak of him many times as the son of man. Now, the reason this is all necessary for us to connect the dots, so to speak, or the puzzle pieces from the Old Testament is because this solution to the sin problem of man had to be a man or a human to redeem human beings. He had to be God also in order to redeem human beings because of the ransom that was demanded. In Psalm 49, verse 7 and 8, in earlier verses, he's been talking about people that are very wealthy and have all kinds of money and possessions and prestige, etc. And he says this in verse 7 and 8, None of them can by any means redeem his brother, nor give to God a ransom for him. 
for the redemption of their souls is costly. And it shall cease forever that he should continue to live eternally and not see the pit. So in this passage, we see the sons of Korah prophetically speaking about the ransom that is required to redeem mankind. And it is very costly. No man is going to be able to do it. There's not enough gold in the world to pay it. And so he's telling us that it's very costly to redeem mankind, but that there's a coming one who will bring that ransom. And he is going to be allowed to live forever. He's going to be one that will not see the pit. In other words, he will not see corruption. He will not stay in the grave. He's going to rise again because he's paid the price and God has accepted that price of the blood of Jesus Christ on our behalf. Peter confirms that in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18 through 20, where he talks about we're not redeemed by corruptible things, but we're redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, foreordained and slain before the foundation of the world. So this sin solution had to be sinless. In other words, he couldn't have been a sinner to redeem a sinner. He had to be one that had zero sin. He could not have been subject to the wages of sin because Romans 6, 23 tells us that the wages of sin is death, eternal death, separation from God is what it's speaking of there. But Acts chapter 2, verse 24 through 26 tells us that the grave, it was impossible for the grave to hold Jesus down. He could not see corruption. It was impossible. The grave had no hold on him because he had not sinned. He had not been a sinner. He had not been subject to the wages of sin. Therefore, he could redeem. Only the holy, sinless one of God could pay God's ransom demanded. And it was the shedding of blood. And Jesus paid it with his own blood. He became what the Tanakh and the Old Testament refers to as a kinsman redeemer or a goel. The story of Ruth beautifully portrays this, read at every Shavuot or Pentecost feast. The kinsman redeemer had to meet certain requirements. If some of the kin of that family, if some of his relative was enslaved, lost their land, etc., lost their freedom, only a near kinsman could redeem them. There were mainly basically three main requirements. First of all, the kinsman had to be one connected in a family. In other words, he had to be like them. He had to be kin to them. He had to be related to them. Second, he had to be able to redeem. He had to have the ability. He had to be able to afford it. He had to have the resources and the means to complete it. And thirdly, he had to be willing. He had to want to redeem and be willing to redeem that person. Boaz becomes a type of Christ, and we will refer to him in a later time, but he met all the demands to redeem Ruth. And Jesus is also our kinsman redeemer. He became one of us so that he could be in a family relationship, so to speak. He was a relative. He was a near kinsman to us because he came and was born as this seed of the woman, this baby. He has the resources. He had the sinless blood. The only one who could pay that price 
that ransom price for the sin of mankind. And he was willing. He came willingly. He said the whole scripture that this study is based on. In the volume of the book, it is written of me. I've come to do your will. So he came to do God's will. And he knew what that meant. He was going to have to shed his blood to redeem mankind. So it is in Messiah, the promised Redeemer, Savior from Genesis 3.15, that we are redeemed and saved from our sin. Now, we looked at how he fulfills Isaiah 7.14 and Isaiah 9.6 and 7. And even Matthew records the tie for some of that for us in Matthew chapter 1, verse 18 through 25. When it speaks about Joseph and Joseph's struggle over taking Mary because she was found to be pregnant and he knew he wasn't the father. And so he's struggling. He thinks that she's been impure and unfaithful to him, which was not the case. And so God sends an angel, Gabriel, to Joseph to tell him, to reassure him, no, she is the one that Isaiah 7, 14 wrote about. She is the promised woman that would bear the seed from Genesis 3.15. She is the virgin that would conceive and bear the Son of God. She is the one who will call his name Emmanuel. He is going to be God with us. He is God incarnate. He is Jesus, the only begotten Son of the living God, the Son of God himself. And so he's begotten through the seed of the Word of God implanted in Mary's womb. That seed of the woman has now come to pass. And it was not by man's hand, but it was done by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so God lets Joseph know that clearly. And God is tying this all together with Joseph and Mary and this whole account of the coming of Jesus as the seed of the woman. And yet letting Joseph know that he is the son of God. In Proverbs chapter 30, verse 4 and 5, it says this, who has ascended into heaven or descended? Who has gathered the wind in his fist? Who has bound the waters in a garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? Now, if we stop right there, we would know that this word, this scripture, is speaking of God the Father, God the Creator, God the Lord. We would know that because he's the only one that gathers the wind in his fist. He's the only one that can do it. He's the only one that can bind his the waters of the earth in his garment. He's the only one who can establish and who has established all of the ends of the earth. Notice what the rest of the verse says. What is his name and what is his son's name, if you know? So this would have been one of the scriptures that Jesus was referring to when he spoke to Nicodemus, telling us that God has a son. And we know now that his name will be called Jesus, for he will save his people from his sins. That's what Matthew 1, 18 through 25 is telling us as we see the account of Joseph and what the angel confirms to Joseph. He is the ransom. He is the redeemer. He is the savior for all who will believe. He is the one who will make people born again. He is the one who can bring to them eternal life and they can be born from above, exactly what Jesus was telling Nicodemus. He is the one and only one who can give eternal life, and someone can be born again by the Spirit of God, born from above. 
He is the one who brings eternal life. So Jesus is telling Nicodemus that he is the answer. He is the one prophesied in the Old Testament in his own scriptures. And so another place that Jesus is speaking of here is to help expound to Nicodemus how one is born of water and of the spirit. Born of water simply means through a physical birth. In other words, only human beings can be born again. And the second thing is through the spirit. One born of the Holy Spirit through the spiritual birth granted by the power of the Holy Spirit. So Nicodemus understood the physical birth part, but he didn't have the revelation to understand how to be born by the Spirit of God. Religion will never show you that. Religion is the dead, dry letter of the law. Religion is all the rules and regulations, the works, the things that we think we got to do. It's like sewing those fig leaves together and trying to cover ourselves. But it has no spirit life in it. It has nothing in it of any substance. And Jesus is telling Nicodemus that. Jesus even uses the example of the wind meaning that this is an invisible work that God does by his spirit deep inside of a person. It's not seen in the outer eye at first, but eventually there will be fruit of it. In other words, he says, the wind comes. Well, you hear it before you can see any evidence of it. It comes before you see any evidence of it, but you do see the fruit of it when you notice the trees are blowing, you know, the leaves of the trees and the branches of the trees blowing back and forth. We can't see the wind itself, but we can see the effect of it. We can see the result. So Jesus is telling him, he's telling Nicodemus that all of this that I'm telling you is nothing new. It's in the Tanakh. It's in the fact of your own scriptures. Isaiah 9, 6 told you, Nicodemus, that his name would be called the Father of Eternity, Aviad, the Father of Eternity, meaning the one and only one who can procreate, create, or originate eternal life. He's the only one who can sire eternal life in anyone who will accept him. He's the source of eternal life. It is found in him and no other. He alone creates it. There are many scriptures that attest to this. Some of those include John 3, 14 through 16 and verse 36, as we spoke about the earlier passages in John 3, John 5, 24, John 6, verse 40 and 47, John chapter 10, especially verse 28, John 12, 50, John 17, verse 2 and 3, 1 John 2, 24 through 25, 1 John 5, 11 through 13 and verse 20, Romans chapter 6, verse 23, Titus chapter 1, verse 1 through 3. And so we see the mouth of many witnesses attesting to this, John and Paul throughout the New Testament in various places. Eternal life is used 64 times in the New Testament. 34 of these are in John's writings in the Gospels and his epistles alone. Several of these and others refer to everlasting life or life eternal, which is even found in the Old Testament in Daniel chapter 12, verse 2. The New Testament declares boldly that Jesus is the only begotten of the Father, meaning one born, 
literally born. Both Luke and the author of Hebrews testify of this by quoting Psalm chapter 2, verse 7, where God the Father says, This day I have begotten you, the Son. He's speaking to the Son. And we see in the New Testament a couple of places in John, chapter 1, verse 14 and 18, and chapter 3, verse 16 and 18, where that is spoken of as well. We see also where he is the only begotten, the only born Son of God, in Luke chapter 1, verse 26 through 38. We see the story, the account of that. He's the only person birthed from God's own eternal seed in the natural as a human being. He is the one of a kind. He was sired with an eternal seed, and his blood is eternal. Hallelujah. He is 100% God and 100% man. Also in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, being called the man, Christ Jesus. This is proof of the importance of the virgin birth and his divine conception. He was sired with an eternal seed. His blood is eternal. And because he was born from the eternal seed, bearing eternal life, he can then birth eternal life, sire it, in everyone who will believe in him through the power of the Holy Spirit. He is the originator, the creator, the source of the eternal seed, eternal life of the rhema word of God, granting eternal life to all who will believe because he is the father of eternity. He was the seed of the woman and he causes all who will believe in him to be born again and have eternal life that he gives them. To be born again simply means to be born from above. To be born from above. And so Jesus, as the Father of eternity, can now give to any repentant sinner eternal seed, eternal life, totally overcoming the law of sin and death. Christ conquered death and was raised to life again never to die again. He overcame sin, death, and the grave. And when a person is repentant of their sin and believes in Jesus, they become justified. The Spirit of God will then come into them and bring the implanted word to them, the living seed of the word, and they are now born again by the Spirit of the living God, made brand new, and have the blessing of eternal life. That's Psalm 133 verse 3 spoke of. The Spirit of God takes the living seed containing eternal life from the Father of eternity and implants it in the heart of any repentant sinner. Anyone who truly is sorry for their sin has come to God, confessed it, and repented of it, and he gives them eternal life, writing their name in the Lamb's book of life, which is another place that speaks in the Old Testament of this that Nicodemus should have known, and Jesus makes it very clear. And it's found in Psalm 87, verse 5 and 6. And of Zion it will be said, This one and that one were born in her, and the Most High himself shall establish her. The Lord will record when he registers the people, This one was born there. So what happens is when a person is born again of the Spirit of the living God, putting their faith in Jesus and his finished work alone for their salvation, receiving his blood on their behalf, the gift of eternal life, 
is granted to them in that moment when they are born again. And according to Psalm 87, even from the Tanakh, from the Hebrew scriptures, from the Old Testament, they are born from above, born of Zion, born of the heavenly Jerusalem. And when that happens, the Lord records their name in his special book. It's called the Lamb's Book of Life in the book of Revelation. It is the book where he himself writes the names in, his own special family album, you could say. It's our citizenship registry, his special book. It's the registry of all of his people, those who are born again. And when you receive Jesus, he writes your name in the Lamb's Book of Life and registers you as one that's been born from above. So being born again, this special book, Lamb's Book of Life, and receiving eternal life from the Father of Eternity was prophesied and attested by several different Old Testament Tanakh witnesses, including Isaiah, the sons of Korah, and Daniel himself. Notice also that Jesus also spoke about this book and attested who is found there in Luke chapter 10, verse 17 through 20. Those who believe in him are written in that book, and that gives us a reason to rejoice. The seed of the woman is the father of eternity, the one who saves and redeems us and writes our name in the Lamb's book of life, making us new creations, giving us eternal life, which was God's intent all along when he made man and woman in the first place. The seed of the woman is the solution to mankind's sin problem. And his name is Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Messiah. Pray that this has been a blessing to you. And Lord willing, you can join us again for future messages and episodes of the volume of the book series and of other messages that we bring to you through Covenant Truth Ministries. God bless you today in Jesus' name. Amen.